Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the Autism Science Foundation weekly podcast. As promised, this week we have a special guest. His name is Mark Shen, and he's an amazing researcher from the University of North Carolina. Prior to becoming an assistant professor at UNC, he did a postdoc at UNC, but before that, he got his PhD from the Mind Institute at UC Davis in California. And listen to this. He actually has a bachelor's in economics from Brown. So the moral to that is that if you start out in a totally different field, you can still become an autism researcher. Dr. Shen is a translational neuroscientist. That means he integrates neuroimaging and genetics, traditionally more descriptive measures, into treatment and clinical assessment of kids with autism. He works with animal model researchers as well to ensure that what's being studied in animals is being studied in humans and vice versa. We really need more of these researchers in the world and especially in autism. In his previous life, before he was a professor, but after he was an economics major, he was a behavioral therapist for children with developmental disorders. A few years ago, Dr. Shen's group first reporting a finding which at the time may have been spurious but since then has been replicated. That is, that on average, children who have a high risk of developing autism show an increase in what is called the cerebral spinal fluid around the brain compared to those that are typically developing or don't have a family history of autism. This cerebral spinal fluid is just that. It's fluid. It's not blood and it's not water, but it is a fluid that surrounds the brain between the brain and the skull. It's also found all through the spinal column and protects the spinal cord. It's like a waterbed. If you hit your head, there is this fluid around the brain to absorb the blow so you don't damage your brain from, say, smacking your head on a cabinet door, which happens quite often. It also has other functions. It provides nutrients to the brain, which, by the way, needs completely different nutrients than other organs, so it has a separate fluid resource, and it also eliminates waste from cells in the brain. So his findings were particularly unique because he didn't look at infants after they were diagnosed. He backed up that truck and looked at the fluid before they were diagnosed as early as six months of age. Well, how do you do that? How do you find somebody with autism before they're diagnosed with autism? Well, as I said, he and his group studied what is known as baby siblings. These are younger siblings of kids with autism that have a 15 times greater chance of a diagnosis compared to those in the general population. These kids need earlier monitoring and probably intervention. He brought some of these baby siblings into the clinic and was able to scan their brains from six months to 24 months of age, at which point at two years, they were evaluated for autism. A few studies now have shown a significant increase in fluid around the brain in infants that have gone on to be diagnosed with autism. This isn't specific to autism. This increase in fluid is also seen in children with other neurological issues. But what other studies don't do is look at this finding in the brain before diagnosis is made. Now, the studies so far have only looked at before diagnosis and at diagnosis. They haven't so far looked at after the diagnosis from two to four years of age. Why would they? Well, first of all, maybe this extra fluid dissipates. And if it did dissipate, the fact that it's seen at six months to two years of age, but then goes away after two years of age would be absolutely amazing. It would be actually interesting to see if the differences before a diagnosis disappeared after the diagnosis. And also because they looked at siblings, there's a genetic component to all this that's hard to pull out from the effect of autism. So the main question is, what about kids without a family history of autism and in kids older than two years of age? That was Dr. Shen's next step. To do this, he worked with families at the UC Davis Mind Institute Autism Phenome Study. 
These are families are brought into the Mind Institute and given slews of behavioral, biological imaging tests, and of course, access to some of the most cutting edge intervention and services possible in Northern California. In this way, this group could look at different subgroups and see whether or not more fluid was related to different behaviors, if there was a genetic marker associated with this fluid, and how it correlated to overall head size. Now, Dr. Shen is going to talk more about the differences between previous studies and this study in a minute, but let me skip to the good part. The research found that the increase in fluid seen in autism extended past two years of age and were seen in boys and girls with no difference between boys and girls. Thank you for looking at that, Dr. Shen. On average, kids with autism had about 15% more fluid in their brain compared to those without autism. Also, the finding was seen regardless of family history. That is, whether or not there was an older sibling in the family who had autism didn't seem to make a difference. Greater levels of fluid were associated with greater sleeping problems and lower nonverbal ability. So there seems to be something about this that causes specific impairments in kids with autism. And by the way, I'm not sure anyone has actually looked at this in adults with autism. I asked Dr. Shen and he didn't think so, but we both agreed that they should. Does this effect persist past four years of age and how long? And if it does go back to normal, when? So you've listened to me long enough. I asked Dr. Shen what makes this study so special and what makes it different from the other studies. This is the third study uh, following three independent samples that we have found that young children with autism have an excessive amount of cerebral spinal fluid surrounding the brain. This cerebral spinal fluid, or CSF, is called extraaxial CSF because it surrounds the brain. So in the previous two studies, we followed infants longitudinally uh, from six months of age until they were diagnosed with autism at two years of age. And in those two studies, we found that infants who would later be diagnosed with autism had an increased amount of extraaxial CSF at six months of age. And this CSF remained abnormally increased through two years of age when the children were diagnosed with autism. Now, these two previous studies followed infants who were at higher familial risk for developing autism. And that's because they had an older sibling who was already diagnosed. And we know that there is a higher recurrence rate of autism in siblings. So one question that remained from these previous studies was, well, what about children with autism from the general community who don't have a family history of autism or an older sibling with autism um, and who are not, quote unquote, high risk? Do these children also have an increased amount of extraaxial CSF? In other words, does this brain abnormality of excessive CSF, is it generalizable to the broader population of children with autism or only those with a family history of autism. And the second question we posed was that we knew from our previous studies that abnormally increased CSF was present as early as six months of age to two years of age. So we asked the question, does CSF remain abnormally increased beyond infancy, beyond two years of age? So in the current study, we addressed these two questions by studying a group of children with structural MRI scans at two to four years of age. And we were very grateful to the families who participated in, in this study because we ended up with a large sample size of children, 159 kids with autism. And they included both children with autism with no other family history of autism, so from the general community, and children with autism who had an older sibling with autism, 
So those kids are at higher familial risk, like our previous studies. So what we found was that the autism group still had abnormally increased extraaxial CSF at two to four years of age, actually about 15% more CSF than controls. Furthermore, this increased CSF in autism was present regardless of family history of autism. And in fact, the children with autism from the general community had virtually identical amounts of CSF than children with autism who had a family history. And both of these autism subgroups had greater CSF than controls, about 15% greater. We also found that greater CSF was associated with more sleep problems and lower nonverbal ability in these children. So these studies provide consistent evidence that increased extraaxial CSF is an early brain abnormality that is detectable using conventional structural MRI scans and that it appears to be reliable, having been found in three independent samples of children spanning the ages from six months of age through to four years of age, and that it is generalizable having been found in both high-risk children and children with autism from the general community. I also asked, how do you think this relates to autism? Since the effect appears so early, could it be part of the things that cause autism? Could it be the result of neurodevelopment gone awry? Or is it both? We have started to study this question. How is having too much extraaxial CSF related to differences in brain development? We do know the two are related to some degree because in all three studies we conducted, too much CSF was positively correlated with greater brain size. Now what we are doing is conducting additional studies to determine the nature of this relationship. And to do that, we are collaborating with research teams at multiple universities, including basic scientists, so we can study the underlying mechanism using animal models and then translate the knowledge gleaned from those studies to combine them with the findings in our studies of children. A really exciting new aspect of this is that there have been new discoveries in the last five years that have highlighted the important role that cerebral spinal fluid has on cleaning the brain. So every six hours, we get a fresh batch of CSF that circulates through the brain and washes away metabolites of brain function that would otherwise build up in the brain if it wasn't washed away. Our hypothesis is that when we see in MRIs an excessive amount of CSF surrounding the brain, that this is an indication that CSF is building up and not circulating and cleaning the brain as efficiently as it should. We are now investigating this hypothesis. What is known in the literature is that efficient cleaning of the brain by CSF is facilitated by getting normal sleep. And in the current study, we found that abnormally increased CSF was associated with sleep problems in children with autism. So what we are studying now is the relationship between CSF, brain development, and sleep problems, which we know are a big challenge for families living with autism. Finally, as he's a translational researcher, I asked him how parents of infants and young children with autism interpret this data and use it, or how else should it be used? One potential 
is that identifying early CSF and brain abnormalities could be used to help in the early detection of autism risk, at least for one subtype of autism. Now, we know that autism is very heterogeneous, so we don't expect all children with autism to have increased CSF. Although our studies indicated an 80% sensitivity for having this marker. And actually, the current study demonstrated that if we use information on the amount of CSF the child has, brain size, and the sex of the child, we can actually distinguish children who have autism from those who do not with 83% positive predictive value. The important next step is to determine if this is specific to autism, which we're actively doing by collaborating with groups who study other conditions. I think the important takeaway is that increased extraaxial CSF volume seems to be a reliable brain abnormality that is detectable using conventional structural MRI scans and that has now been found in three independent cohorts of children spanning the ages from six months of age through four years of age in both high-risk children and children with autism from the general community. We are now validating whether increased extraaxial CSF could be an early marker that could stratify and tease apart the heterogeneity of autism by identifying one biological subtype of autism that shares an underlying biology. This would have two important applications. First, for the early detection of risk, since we are seeing the CSF abnormality at six months of age, before the onset of the diagnostic behavioral signs of autism. And second, if we can identify the underlying biological mechanisms of increased CSF, it could map on to more specific and individualized treatments to target the underlying biology. Both of these, early detection and more effective treatments, would have the potential to really improve the lives of individuals with autism which ultimately is what really motivates us as scientists dedicated to studying autism. And I just wanna end by saying we are extremely appreciative to all of the families and children who participate in our studies because they're really the inspiration for the work that we do. And personally, I find it incredibly gratifying to work with the families. So thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Shen. That link to sleep was somewhat unexpected, and I truly hope that you continue studying this. If this is one of the mechanisms that can help intervene on sleep issues in people with autism, then this is truly a breakthrough. Thank you so much for spending time on this week's podcast and, of course, for all your work and research. Now, I was going to add another study on this week, but I want to save it, and I want you to ponder the impact of extraaxial fluid on the brain and the impact on ASDs. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.